made and lots of doubts we can have about individual decisions they made. But in the aggregate, this was something that really kept the world economy from some much worse outcomes. But it's also interesting, isn't it, that these three men don't actually share the same philosophy. Bernanke is a, a man who has learned a great deal based on his study of the Depression. But um, King of the Bank of England would have a completely different attitude under most circumstances, wouldn't he? Yes, they come from very different traditions, different philosophical approaches, uh, different experiences. Jean-Claude Trichet was a French civil servant. He worked at the French Treasury and became the most powerful central banker in Europe. Uh, Mervyn King and Ben Bernanke, they were both academic economists. They actually shared an office at MIT in the early 1980s, but had different in impulses and instincts on what to do when things turned bad. So I start the book with this scene of August 9th, 2007. It was really the first day of what became a global financial crisis. And uh, Jean-Claude Trichet is on vacation in France. Ben Bernanke has a usual workday in, in Washington. Uh, Mervyn King is, uh, is off at a cricket match in, in London for the day. And uh, that's the first time one of the central banks did an intervention. The ECB pumped 95 billion euros into the European banking system. And that day they had all very different philosophies on what was going on, what the threat was, and what to do about it. Now what we saw is as time progressed, as the threat became graver, as uh, we entered that post-Lehman Brothers time of, of the fall of 2008 that we all remember some of those dark days, uh, they, they did find common purpose. The way you talk about them, the way you've profiled them, the way you describe the work they do, these men seem kind of like, oh, like Illuminati. I, what do you think after this study of the way they approach their problems, of their ethics? You know, there, there are aspects that are a little troubling if you believe in democracy and transparency and all these things. Um, you know, these are the global central bankers. They meet six times a year in Basel, Switzerland, in this cylindrical building next to the train station where they, uh, that's technically not part of any country. It's like the United Nations. If you go to the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, you are not on Swiss soil, you are on international soil. And they, they have these long sessions of debating economics. They have a private dinner of just the, the leading nation's central bankers on the 18th floor. They have delicious food and great wine, Bordeaux, Burgundy, good wine. What happens around that table is a sense of common purpose builds, and they feel a loyalty to, to each other, to the common purpose of trying to shape a better world economy. That said, it does raise lots of concerns if you don't like the idea of, of a bunch of uh, guys getting together and drinking good wine and charting out the future of all of us. It raises lots of, lots of concerns. At the same time, in many ways over the last few years, that process has looked better in its outcomes than what we've gotten out of democratically elected officials. Presidents and parliaments have often been slow up on the uptake at a time the central banks have been more assertive and tried to contain this economic damage. Of course, the way we look at politics in the United States these days, it almost seems like a benevolent dictator would be a good idea. I'm not proposing that, by the way. Are these men aware of the power they wield? I think very much so. There is definitely a sense that it is their obligation to try and learn from history, to try and understand where their predecessors have gone wrong. You know, if you look at history, when central bankers fail, societies fail. It was the failures of, of the, the German central bank in, in uh, Weimar, Germany, that created hyperinflation that led to the initial rise of the Nazis. Then the Great Depression, of course, in the, in the 1930s, that was ultimately a failure of the global central bankers to act with common purpose, to flood the financial system with money, to respond to the actual economic conditions they were facing. The result was an economic depression and, uh, again, the rise of the Nazis in World War II. The stakes here are massive. If they get it right, the world is in a better place. We can avoid a lot of bad things. People can have a prosperous tomorrow and have better outcomes. If they fail, the, the outcomes can be just horrible.
One of the things people want to know about them, I think, is whether there is any politics involved. We talk about them as though they are independent of politics, and in many ways they are, because they run the economy uh, that fires up the politics. But on the other hand, uh, you've done a lot of study of this, and you've, you've met a lot of these people. You've seen the ramifications. Are there politics? Are they servants at some times of political power? They try not to be, but they are inevitably chosen by politicians. They serve at the will of democratically elected legislatures. You know, there's a lot of efforts to insulate them from politics by giving them long terms and non-renewable terms, that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, they do operate in a political system. We've seen some very uncomfortable entanglements between political authorities and the central bankers. In Europe, you have the ECB is actually part of this troika of, of lenders that negotiates with the Greek government and the Portuguese government and the Irish government on what the bailout's going to consist of and what they have to do to get that bailout. So now you have this weird situation where the central bank is essentially dictating to democratically elected legislatures what to do with their taxes and their pension system and so on. So what do we do to make them better? I mean, is there a way to, I don't know, curtail the, the privileges? The